Hi, folks. This is Neil from the Reboot Distribute podcast. Um, as ever, I'm joined by David Alcabas and Bruce Thomas from Tribes. And today we're very lucky to have Connor McNicholas on the cast with us. Um, and Connor's going to describe his career from uh, being an editor in some of the world's best magazines, particularly within the music industry like NME and Mixmag, um, and to where he is now in his career um, and what got him there and how he feels working in a distributed environment. Um, and particularly in this new world of work where we predominantly either went from remote um, working or hybrid. Um, so if David and Bruce, you guys want to say hello to everyone. Hi, guys. Good to see you. Hello. So, Connor, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very good, man. Thank you for having me on. So obviously you're a, a, you were a client of Tribes. Um, and obviously we, we don't want to really push on, on the hard sell here in Tribes. But what brought you to, to working with Tribes? Uh, well, tribes uh, were recommended uh, to to me through uh, a big media agency, WaveMaker, um, when um, I was doing some uh, some uh, some real rebooting uh, over at Compare the Market, and uh, we had a large web build project. Uh, I tried to avoid a web build project, but it rapidly became clear that there was no way to avoid it. Um, because of the way things were structured and uh tribes were recommended and uh yeah i mean bruce and i discovered that we just knew all the same people in manchester so it made working with tribes a lot easier um but yeah we were we were kind of hand in glove for about a year okay this was the obvious question that the audience are going to have what's alexander and sergey like uh they're amazing but they're they're total divas i mean you know they just expect everything. It's uh, they're, they're a bit of a nightmare to work with, to tell you the truth. They're very different off screen than they are on screen. Um, but I'd yeah, I should probably not go into that anymore for legal reasons. Okay. So, as them probably a lot of their assets were frozen, being Russian oligarchs. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, in regard in regards to your experience, what what got brought you from, with say for example, from working as an editor on the likes of Top Gear magazine and NME? to working on something like compare the market well i'd uh, the the two things that i'd always really loved right from just being a kid really were technology and pop culture and you know i started my career at a time terrifyingly pre-internet and so getting into magazines was really, it, it was the most effective way of communicating with a big audience and having a kind of a pop culture impact, being part of that big conversation. Um, I mean, you know, I, I vividly remember somebody showing me the internet for the first time on a, a little Scion organizer. Do you remember those little things? And they managed mm -hmm. to plug in an ethernet cable and told me that this information was coming from a computer in California, and it was a real wow moment um, in the early 90s. Um, but obviously, the 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 emergence of Web 1.0, 2.0 just went on to dominate, you know, my entire career. Um, and the magazine industry at that time was almost defined by its reaction to uh, that emerging uh, digital world and how disruptive it was to business models and talent and value chains and all of that sort of thing. Um, and uh, and and I think you know I I a couple of factors. One, I kind of lost faith in the magazine industry's ability to adapt at the speed at which it needed to. Um, I also needed to follow the money, and the money wasn't in that industry. It was in agencies. Um, and having worked in the agency world, one of the things that really frustrated me 
was the fact that the clients were not set up in the right way to be able to you know create good work that would connect with audiences or um uh, or be able to make full use of the opportunities of the digital space and that frustration just eventually led me into consultancy that i just ended up going further and further up the uh, the kind of um the hierarchy to to end up having conversations at a ceo and cmo level to say look you guys need to structure completely differently and i still feel a lot of the work uh that that i do is is unpicking a lot of the kind of 20th century habits and behaviors from businesses even now okay um what do you think for example what you're doing now what is the big difference between obviously you, you mentioned they're moving from that kind of analog world of magazines and publishing to the more digital space and working with ceos and ceos from say for example being a news editor of nme and and not uh, making uh, Bruce's band the garbage, the the best band in the world at the time, and um, to to working on a number of digital projects. What what's the what's what what would you find is the biggest difference, or was the biggest kind of pivot for you to get to where you are now? Well, I think there was uh, within that old analog world, whether it was the record industry or magazines, you know the. The two things that you had was uh, you had certainty um, that, you know, you were working within fixed systems. And so optimization, uh, you know, was a real challenge because everything was about marginal gain because you couldn't buck those physical distribution systems. Um, and the other one was that, you know, things tended by definition to move incredibly slowly. Um, the shift to digital obviously means that all of those value chains uh, are disrupted there is enormous liquidity of culture and habit and the movement of money um and so you just got to be on your toes the whole time because you know anything that you've optimized for 6 months later it's going to be it's going to be different and that's that's the key really is making sure that you put in place dynamic systems that have responsiveness built in rather than at any point thinking you've fixed it uh, because you will be disappointed because uh, it will change. And, and and I think the other thing that comes out of that that people perhaps don't talk about enough is the human uh, impact of all of that. That it, you know, especially for those at an exec level, you know, part of what I do ends up being, you know, I want to say mentoring, but actually it's probably more like therapy a lot of the time because it's incredibly demanding. You know, the risk that people are managing is enormous. Um, and, you know, there, there just isn't any certainty. And the the generations that we're supposed to manage now, you know, kind of are increasingly demanding and complex. And I think so you've got this exponential increase uh, of of demand on human beings and and helping people build systems that protect them as executives and allow them to make the great decisions they need to make is is very much part of the job. It, you, there's no point having something that works on a whiteboard or a PowerPoint slide if you haven't taken into account that human aspect. Yeah, I suppose taking in that human aspect, how do you find managing distributed people or working with distributed teams? Um, uh, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you kind of you kind of get your head around whatever you have to get your head around. So 
you know, um, I started working on the the big compare the market project, which ended up being about 14 months all told um, uh, in, in the pandemic. And, you know, so I didn't meet anybody for, um, you know, for about a year on that project, almost everybody was just working remotely. And you know what, we all got on with it, it was absolutely fine. Um, I'm now working at uh, Lad Bible, the social media publishers, who are a, a vast organisation. I mean, you know, they reach uh, around about a billion people each month with their content. Um, that's a billion people deduplicated across various platforms. Um, and, you know, we uh, a lot of the, the growth that they had during the pandemic meant that um, a lot of the people that they work, you know, that they employed are remote. Um, and I'm now finding that a frustration. So I'm quite happy to come into the office every day, um, you know, because I'm a Gen Xer, right? So I, I kind of grew up with that habit. Um, and I think we just get so much out of it when we are there physically, but you can't sit there worrying about that stuff. You just have to make those systems work. Um, and I think to do it, you just need to have a discipline around technology. And, and the reality is we're all still learning how to use that combination of slack and workplace and zoom and teams and uh you know some things feel like real benefits uh like uh collaborative working on decks whether it's keynote or powerpoint or google slides or whatever it's like oh my goodness how much better is that than it ever was before just so yeah. much easier um and things like uh mirror boards um and um you know kind of figma collaborative spaces all of that sort of stuff really works and feels effortless and a massive value add the video conferencing stuff is a bit meh and then all of the chat systems slack or workplace or whatever are rank and not fit for purpose and nobody has fixed that bit of it. and that drives me bananas so i think you know it you just have to be aware of where you know what's working and what isn't really yeah, and I suppose, Connor, sorry, I was just going to say, I'd jump in on that. Um, but you mentioned about Slack being, I mean, I won't use the word rank, you know. What is it about? I mean, it seems to be the go-to platform. I mean, maybe that's because it's the only thing that does the job reasonably well. I, I use Slack not as much as some of the other members of our team. But what do you think it is about, say, Slack that doesn't work well? And what do you think could work well without maybe giving away a big idea that you might have? But yeah, what is yeah. it? what's it missing? Yeah, so I agree with you. I think Slack is probably the best of the bunch from my experience. But I think all of those systems suffer from that thing that social media has suffered from, which is almost a kind of uh, an, an anonymity and the the fact that there is very little cost to anybody to put stuff into those spaces. So if there's a bunch of us in a room around a big table if I choose to speak, I am taking time up from everybody else around the table. And, you know, I'd better make sure that my contribution has some value within that space, right? So there is a rarity to that communication in that analog environment. And, and therefore, people think a bit more generally about about what they do within those written spaces where they are just kind of dumping grounds for stuff there is no cost to the communication at all and so people don't hold back they 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 communicate things that are unnecessary and also and i think this is something that is being learned by the generations that are coming into the workplace now 
that they don't appreciate the cost of negativity within those spaces, particularly when you're working on creative stuff. You know, if, uh, you know, a positive endorsement of ideas or moving them forward or kind of like a, 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 a proactive positive critique always adds value but people going oh I just don't get it or I'm not so sure about that or I can see this problem with this thing it can really take the energy out of those spaces it kills them and uh and I think you know we we haven't really worked out what the etiquette is for those spaces to make them effective and and you know the the way one behaves within a Twitter environment or a Facebook environment should be different to the way one behaves in a kind of a private WhatsApp chat room, which should be different to the way one behaves in Slack. And I think as human beings, we're not actually trained very well. So people end up just doing a mush in all three. And actually, you know, it's it's that old signal to noise thing, right? You know, the the within those written environments, those shared chat environments, it's probably about 50% signal and 50% noise. And that, you know, I just think creates this glut, this goo of stuff that you've got to wade through to get to the good things. Um, I wonder whether, you know, what we've learned about social platforms is that I think broadly they've been more effective when they've been more visual. Um, And I wonder whether, you know, actually those spaces do need to become more visual because, our brains are able to analyze that stuff and process the information much more quickly if it's presented in that format. Um, so that that would be my push is just making sure that you can make it almost like a, a kind of, you know, scrolling down should almost be like an animation that tells a narrative rather than you having to sit there and read everything on each of the things that you need to, to, to go through. Yeah, really interesting. Um, for me, it kind of mirrors what's going on in society generally with with social media right everyone's sort of you know it's a similar space isn't it it's uh, you know admittedly slacks or private business focused space but it is this thing where whatever said is left there and it has this sort of mark which remains and people can scroll back up and have a look at it and uh, I guess what's interesting for me is is you sort of said you're going in and talking to businesses about how how they move out of 20th century ways of doing things and this is obviously a very 21st century subject right um what kind of so what kind of what kind of advice would would you kind of recommend giving to people then because this is something we face all the time it's like how do we get people to to work smarter in these environments and you know it's 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 easy to point out problems and i think you've identified a really a really valid one so the interesting thing for me is what you might think you know is is the way forward how how do we educate people how do we brief people on the ways to work there and and what sort of you know is it is it a sort of simple do's and don'ts list or is it a kind of an awareness play or you know what are your thoughts on how we can kind of improve that yeah i think it's both of those and i think it is that simple i think it is sitting down and talking about it but the irony is that that discussion is probably better done face to face um but you know get, getting people together and and saying look you know we're we're we understand that we have to have a distributed workplace um you know it's very important for people I, i've got people on my staff you know, this office is based in London and I've got people within my team, uh, you know, a couple live in Bristol. One of them lives in Norwich, you know, and uh, they, they're they kind of fairly new into the workplace and they certainly don't have the money to be commuting into London every day. Right. So there's a financial 
you know, and and they're staying where they're staying because the you know rents are an awful lot cheaper. So the financial situation is pushing people more into these things. So it's it as as a as a leader, it's never as simple as going. I'm sorry, I just want everybody in the office because it, the the economic reality does not allow that, and you certainly can't get the talent that you want. So. So saying, look, you know, we recognize those things. It's a necessary thing. We need to be agile. And therefore, that means we need to use these tools to be able to collaborate. And then, as you've just said, just saying, what do we like about them? What do we like about this? What do we like about that? Is, are there um, are there elements of Zoom that are particularly better than Teams or vice versa? Um, you know, we're using workplaces uh, is, is the kind of default uh, chat within, within this environment. And when we're using workplace, you know, what are the kind of, as you say, the things that we like and what are the things that we don't like? I mean, I've had to be explicit with team members. Um, there's a guy that I'm working with at the moment and his, his previous agency, they had to initiate a rule, which is basically, it, it was quite simply, don't piss on ideas in Slack, you know, because that, it, it just kills stuff completely. And and being explicit with people, you know, that is, it's an absolute no-no. If you want to have a private conversation with me because you think something isn't working, then by all means do that. I am, I'm, I value that contribution always. Um, but what won't be happening is just kind of, um, you know, t- uh, allowing people to just throw things in, you know, without thinking about it. So I think, I, I think, We've been using these things intensely now for a couple of years, right? Um, and I think now is a time as businesses to take a step back and go, look, you know, we've used all of this, you know, vast swathe of, of kind of software platforms to allow us to do these things better, but actually what's working and what isn't and what's right for us in terms of an etiquette of usage. And a do's and don'ts list as an output is probably a really sensible idea because it gives you something that you can give to everybody when they arrive. So you get everybody on the same operating system. And it also allows people to very gently self-police environments. You know, we all agreed we wouldn't do that. You know, it, it that's not something that was ephemeral. It's literally written down and everybody knows it. So I think, you know, that fighting that that digital complexity with some really good list simplicity feels like a, a good way in. worth me just asking a question i mean it's a bit related to the same subject but you've got obviously elon musk now saying Mm. he wants all twitter employees to be in the office for at least 40 hours a week now you know i'm not against that i mean we run a distributed business and as i explained on you know the first podcast it was kind of by accident that we ended up doing it this way you know not necessarily by design um I mean, I agree being in an office together is great. It really is. I mean, there's nothing better than having, you know, face-to-face contact. But the realities in the way things are from the development point of view, digital development point of view, in other words, the lack of resource that there is out there sort of forces people and businesses to have to, unless you really have super deep pockets like some of the social media platforms and you can afford to pay your engineers a vast amount of money. But then they're letting a lot of these guys go now and it's whether they've overhired or whether they've overspent on I mean, the, the jury's out on whether or not these businesses will start to sort of work smartly and start to pull people from around the world to do tasks for them in a much more cost-effective way. But I think it's the Elon Musk question, sorry, Connor, is what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that's just too much or do you think he's bang on the money and that the staff need to be in and yeah, you know, I th- I think hold it's the business way- back? Yeah, I think it's way too much. I think he is simply, in that case, looking for reasons to create conflict 
um, and weed out people who aren't prepared to just kind of follow his every word. It's quite a useful filtering edict, isn't it? It's like those people that are prepared to follow something like that are the kind of people that will basically take anything. And that's what he needs to kind of pull that thing forward. Um, and it's interesting, you know, the, the as you say, you know, this this perception we've had that these people can afford to uh, to hire anybody. What we're discovering is actually they couldn't afford to hire anybody. And, you know, the whole thing was simply, you know, floating on a bubble of, uh, of venture capital. And at some point, you know, all of that money has got to be paid back. And all that's happening is they're just getting into bigger and bigger debt. So, you know, it's a basket case. But but you're right. I think, you know, the it's, it's why these distributed practices have to be embraced. Firstly, because, um, you know, without it, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's just simply a reality of, of kind of hiring the best people. It just is now. And, you know, really good people will make demands about deciding to live wherever they want to live um and and we do have the technology to make it work and it is getting better it's not perfect and also you know that that previous need as part of the startup process of like you know i've got to get an office you know was you could kind of blag it from mates but you know it was such a major part of your cost base right and the fact that you can now take that out of the equation who needs an office then you know i just think that that creates more entrepreneurial liquidity and opportunity and i think and anything that we can do particularly to 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 allow marginalized communities into that entrepreneur space has got to be a good thing and so being in a space where you don't have to have the cost of setting up an office and you don't and and you're not limited to to being able to do it if you know somebody who's already got an office in which case you get these kind of self-perpetuating structures of uh, of kind of uh, uh, capital that rattle down i think that feels that feels like a really positive move to me so yeah, just to, that, on, I think sorry, sorry to jump in, Neil. I'm just this is really fascinating me. I mean, because we've got similarity, haven't we, in the music industry? And I'm wondering because this feels like we're sort of distinguishing between startups and big companies. Like, is this distributed thing sort of exclusive to one or the other, or is it? You know, I mean, I, I think does it feel a bit like you? Because it strikes me that there's a real shift going on do you think this is similar to that shift that happened when the music industry went from analog to digital which indeed the publishing industry did as well right because of the internet so do, i mean and there was talk you know are the major record companies gonna gonna kind of follow this thing of self-distributing or are the major companies gonna embrace the downloads or do the independents benefit from the streaming model or the upcoming artists so there was this sort of similar division of, of categories within that change but the fact is I think that's come clear now is that the world was just changing. And in fact, it wasn't one or the other, it was everyone. And eventually everyone had to go that way. That does it do you think that that's kind of potentially where we're at with this new way of working? Because it feels it feels to me like that that's what's going on. And I, it'd be interesting to hear. Yeah. Well, ev everything always ends up a hybrid, doesn't it? You know, we we tend to we like to retro retrospectively paint pictures of hard binary choices, but that never happens. And you know, the internet didn't kill radio and YouTube didn't kill television and television didn't kill cinema. It's like, you know, these things just stack on top of each other and the ratios of them shift around over time, but it just, you get a more, it's like any, uh, you know, kind of DNA life-based, you know, ecosystem on earth that, you know, you get that kind of diversity 
when resources uh, are extensive, you just get more and more complexity feeding into the system. Um, and you know that that's what we're that's what we're seeing with this. I, I think the reality is everybody is a hybrid business. The only question is what your ratios are. So for some bigger businesses, they may want to have lots of people in one place for cultural reasons apart from anything else, but there's no way that there is nobody who's doing remote working. So you might be kind of, you know, heavily physical with a small bit of remote. And then for startup businesses, you might start off, um, you know, almost all distributed digital, but you're still going to want to get together maybe even once a year or something like that. And so you'll kind of like really dial down on the physical and massively dialed up on the digital. Um, and then you will go on a journey. And, and again, like all these things, it's not fixed. You know, it will yeah. change and shift over time depending on the challenges. But I think, as you say, that those kind of existential shifts, this is definitely one of those existential shifts. Um, and it's something that has affected almost everybody. And, you know, we can start to look at, you know, further existential shifts that are coming down the pipe, you know, like uh, the 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 full integration of artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies into the value chain at all stages of all businesses. You know, I, I don't understand why people aren't talking about that more because it's so obvious what's about to happen. You know, it's like talking about computerization in the 80s. It's come everybody at every level in every single way. It will be it will just run through the system and it will transform every single bit of your value chain from beginning to end. There isn't anything you do as a business that isn't going to be fundamentally affected by artificial technology over the next 10 years. So, you know, we should be proactively looking to embrace those things in a in a in a managed way that works for us. But yeah, those. It just seems, you know, going back to what I was saying about the kind of disruption for leaders, that those those disruptive elements, you know, continue to come thick and fast. They're not waiting for us to get over the previous one before the next one turns up. Just on that, Connor, I mean, that was really interesting because when you mentioned about, you know, TV didn't kill off cinema and, you know, if you look at it from a historical point of view, actually radio is stronger than it's ever been. Yeah. There are more and more people listening to radio than, there were, than there's ever been. Cinema. There are more cinemas than you know than than ever. Theatre's huge again. So I mean, every single medium's always tried to you know proclaim that it's going to kill off, or people have said it's going to kill off another medium. Like, oh, TV's here. Nobody will ever go to the theatre again. Suddenly, the theatres. Yeah. It's a bit like when Amazon came along, and nobody will ever. Books will disappear because everybody will read them digitally. It's like there are more books sold now than there have ever been because it's so much easier to buy a book online. Yeah, and so and you don't have to go into Waterstones. Yeah, and so much easier to print them and distribute them as well. Exactly. And I think you know the as as well as you know the the new things bringing life to old things. There's also those ideas that kind of cut asymmetrically across those things. You know where things turn up, things morph in. You know it's like it'll either be uh, X or Y, and it turns up to be an X Y hybrid. And you know so so. Nobody's going to watch things, uh, you know, uh, movie releases in the cinema because we're all going to give them away on streaming services and that'll be our big distribution platform. And it's like, well, no, that doesn't really work out like that now, does it? It's like there is a release of a film and that release of a film takes place over different platforms over a period of time. They're all part of the release. One hasn't negated the other. A bit like the olden um, days, kind of where you used to get a, you know, like James Bond would come out and then three years later, the BBC I know. Exactly. Well, ITV would fight to get the, you know, like 
three years. You is know, this, it take three this, years. Yeah, yeah, is, this, is this a fear of change? Then do you think this is generally just a, a, a human condition that we're afraid of change? Because I mean, you know, there's this beautiful saying the Buddha said, which was that the only constant thing is change. But there seems, you yeah. know, I, people want to hold on to the way things are, right? Do you think that's? Do you think that's? Um, I mean, it just, just it seems to me like this is all about fear of the inevitable change that's coming along. You know, um, like it, the idea it, that people need to be in office, I, and I get it. But if you look back, the the, the office is as kind of like a Dickensian bit of technology, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, and and also, you know, there's there are offices and offices, right? So, you know, we all know that pre-pandemic there was this move to large open plan offices on the thinking that everybody could communicate and move around and coalesce around challenges and solve them. What it actually meant was you were spending most of your time in this incredibly impersonal environment with masses of distractions around you constantly and, uh, you know, huge noise. And so people were desperately trying to create private spaces by putting headphones on and, and kind of like building little barriers. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, uh, they, they are incredibly dysfunctional. And, and there's something to be said, actually, from the kind of the little veal fattening pens that, you know, people used to put together in uh, in the 80s. And you see them in, in kind of 80s American movies. Um, but I, I think, you know, people, you know, there, there needs to be change and there needs to be inertia against change. Because without the inertia against change, you spin off in all sorts of directions. And, you know, that's true you know, within a, a, a kind of plant-based life forms, right? So mutations are good because they can start to bring in competitive advantage, but you don't want it spinning out of control too much because, you know, the, the, the organism will cease to function in exactly the same way that in society i mean as i've grown up you know as a as a student i was i was super super radical and you know uh, expecting change all over the place and couldn't understand some of the stuff that i was reading in the papers as i've got older i understand the function of the in inverted commas forces of conservatism right with a small c in the sense that there are people you know, whose job it is to balance that, the radicalism, because without that, society just kind of ceases to function. Now, I'd probably be considered still more of a radical and more change-focused than most people, um, but at least I understand why those forces of conservatism exist. So I think, in, you know, in people... People are looking, you know, as, as animals, as communal animals, uh, you know, we're looking to have safe... Uh, manageable, sustainable communities. And when you're you're in slow changing environments like savannas or caves in you know um, the the uh, southern part of what is now France, those are very slow moving environments. And you know you don't need to adapt very fast. And it is about habit, and it is about passing on that knowledge from one generation to another. That's what's going to help you survive. Um, so we're really hardwired for that sort of thing. We're not hardwired for massive, rapid adaption. But um, Connor, just on that, that just on that. Sorry to jump in, and I, and I apologise jumping in. But before we get to the next thread, and it, we lose the, this moment, if you think about sort of young people, you know, very you know teenagers, even younger than teenagers, when you talk about being communal animals, do you think that they are communal animals in the same way that we were when we were kids? You know, going out and playing in the street and climbing trees and all that stuff that you hear about on the radio that we don't do anymore whether that's a safety issue because parents are too paranoid about the kids climbing up stuff or putting helmets on them on bikes or whether that is 
actually young people today are a lot more interested in hanging out in places like Facebook and Snapchat and TikTok and actually meeting people in the real world. I know they do that at school and places like that, but they're actually not as bothered about that. Or is that just because the facility to be together is a lot harder in this modern day for young people to get together other youth clubs like they used to be other you know places that kids if you hang out on the street at night people complain because it's oh there's youths hanging around the lamppost yeah. at the bottom of the street. But, but that, what, that, what do you think about that yeah, yeah. i think that that complaint about youths hanging out you know i'm sure you could you could pull up printed stuff from the 18th century where people definitely comparing 100%. about this you know, complaining about the same thing right it's uh you know and so you know there is that uh so many of the these things that we that uh you know some commentators will think of as unique to our modern day experience they're not they're just regular human complaints there's uh, i can't remember the quote but there's something that one of my bosses showed me which was somebody complaining about the terrible fast-moving pace of the modern world and how you know we have to juggle all these multiple things and how really it's just unsustainable and it was a quote from 1922 right so you know we've been complaining about this stuff for a long time and, and as far as the kids go i think there is just an innate need for social interaction it just turns up in different places um you know my boys uh my eldest is is 16 now spends a lot of time hanging out at parties and stuff in 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 a far better social life than i ever had when i was 16 um but he's also uh you know he has um communal interaction with uh mates on video games as well and that's as much a part of his he's kind of out people as the as the cool stuff is so you know i know obviously everybody's down on the metaverse at the moment and quite rightly right because it's a it's an emerging area that needs to be interrogated very firmly um but at the same time you can see those emerging behaviors in gen z and gen alpha they they're absolutely they don't see a differentiation between interaction and physical and digital no. space we well, mentioned the metaverse they aren't going to embrace it yeah you mentioned the metaverse i mean that was one of the things we were going to try and talk about at some stage on this 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 podcast but you say you know it's 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 in a bit of sort of um you know it's a bit distressed at the moment isn't it and obviously with, mm. with mark zuckerberg letting a lot of the staff go and sort of admitting that his move into the metaverse was not as strong as it could have been or certainly there aren't the the users there this is my opinion and it might be completely wrong but i just think it's the headset thing i think that's what holds people back it's not the cost to buy the headset it's a bit like going to the cinema and having to put 3d glasses on and it's quite an uncomfortable it's not the most comfortable thing to do it's not the most natural thing to do to sit there okay when you get into the film it's you you may forget that you've got them on but i mean that's a lightweight pair of cardboard with a different colored lenses you know you're looking at you know oculuses and things like that and although they strip them down from what they used to be they're just so cumbersome and they take a bit of time to put on and set up do you think that might be the reason that the metaverse is having a a bit of a struggle and maybe is is there a way that that could move from a different type of device because i think it's flawed whilst you have to put an oculus headset on that's my it's not about the money no it's it i think there's two key things uh one is what you said which is you know the way in which uh we actually interact with these things and you know i am less interested in vr and far more interested in ar so that notion of augmented reality it is is just it uh it's much more creative and it, in in its way it's much more immersive you can imagine you know the utility cases you know are, are just much more obvious um 
And ultimately, it becomes a lot easier to do it because you are, by definition, augmenting a high visual experience that's already there. So, you know, 90% of the work is already done for you by the real world. You just need to do a little bit of heavy lifting on top to, to get it, you know, and you're, you're adding value to it. Um, and then the the other one is uh, is just the, the nature of, of the visuals. So even if you are looking at virtual environments, most of them are crap. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we've yet uh, developed the kind of visual language that we need for those spaces. And, you know, the, even within the, the kind of the meta virtual worlds, everything turns up incredibly cartoony and yet we're supposed to have some kind of human to human interaction within that space. Um, It has, it has none of the benefits of a video call with, uh, with all of the additional cost and complexity. And you just go, none of this makes sense. But that's why I think within Metaverse, I'm less interested in the corporate applications because I think they're way behind at the moment. And they're not going to be solved by corporates because corporates will come up with nice corporate solutions and they will, and it just won't be human applicable artists within that space is really interesting right give that space over to artists get them to reimagine what these spaces can look like we're not constrained by um you know the the uh the rules of the physical world but what's strange actually if you look at the the movement within this sector you know the travis scott work uh that was done in Fortnite. You know, those kind of massive immersive gigs and seen by millions of people worldwide now, because obviously it exists still on on YouTube. But the creativity that went into that was enormous. They were really successful. And that stuff was like two years ago now, more. And, you know, for some reason that that all of that work seemed to end up at a dead end. And instead of which we've got this kind of emerging meta world of a whole load of, you know, what basically look like kind of corporate illustrations that have been taken off, you know, some kind of Canva um, uh, PowerPoint presentation. And it's like that ain't going to work. It really isn't because it doesn't engage you emotionally. And that's what we want. Definitely. I mean, you mentioned very quick, so one, one last thing and I'll shut up, but going back to what you were saying about, you know, meeting in the office and having that sort of round the table discussion and a bit more physical interaction. Do you think that perhaps one of the applications, and you've talked about the corporates not being involved, but, you know, one of the applications in the future so that teams can work more smartly, do you think that that kind of augmented experience with people in the same room as you kind of kind of in the same room as you so with this this thing we're doing now for instance you know i'd be sat looking at a table with with everybody sat around here so do you think that's a bit of gloss and it actually doesn't really make any difference if we're 2d or 3d or in a table or do you think actually that could solve some of that sort of you know water cooler moment style i I, I think it could definitely help but we we need to bring in we need to kind of humanize those interactions because if you're speaking to a cartoon version of a real person, you're not going to get any value out of it. If I wasn't meaning if, cartoons, I was talking about the, no, 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 I, no, no. I'm, I'm, in principle. Yes. But, but the technology fix has to be to bring people into, you know, real people into that space. You know, if I had a device um, that was as part of in the same way that my phone will read my face, you know, to open it automatically, it should be able to read my face or have a memory of me so that when I'm represented in that world, I, I am represented physically as me. 
um, that's where you can start to have that kind of human to human interaction. And as my eyes move and my head moves in real time in front of a laptop, that same thing should be happening in that space. And until that bit is cracked, I don't think it'll work. But once that is cracked, I can see that feeling much more like a kind of a hanging out with people. Basically, it's got to solve that 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 nuance element because otherwise it, it's so far into the uncanny valley it's just useless yeah yeah, yeah well I, I i know my experience so last christmas one of my companies we bought everybody an oculus quest yeah. too um another thing always oh we'll try we'll try this in the the workplace thing we we'll try the we we'll try a board meeting it lasted once i'd say it's nearly a year since i charged my oculus rift yeah Quest. yeah um, so you are personally responsible for eleven thousand layoffs at Facebook. Yeah, but, should have made it but work. Like I, <laughs> the, te- the technology hasn't caught up. And I think it's from pr- prior companies I was in. I worked in United Health Optum, and they were very much working. They worked in VR. They worked in AR. But let's say, for example, they worked with Hololens quite a lot, and they were using an application for let's say, for example, training surgeons um, and and surgical. Uh, treatments and medical treatments where I think really that's that's one area we're definitely in the future but but saying there were a real representation of yourself within the virtual space I was at an event a few weeks ago called further festival and there was a company there that scans your employees and then creates a real version of that employee in the virtual yeah yeah so yeah. Well, but their their barrier was that the metaverse or Facebook or Meta or whatever you want to call it weren't ready for their technology. So yeah. I think it's a lot of it's catching up. But I think we're still at the back, Nokia. We're at the Nokia Snake version of uh, of this technology. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I yeah. think it's going to solve a lot of the problems. I mean, I, I you know everyone knows that I believe in the distributed model as being a really beneficial thing for businesses, and we're embracing it. But I think when you can actually really not have to travel and be in a in, in a real space and i think you hit the nail on the head kind of you know the, the visual representation is pretty awful at the moment but the, the, as, as inevitable as anything that is going to improve right as bandwidth inc- improves yeah. as processor yeah. speed improves we're going to have the ability to do it and i, I mean we, interesting you mentioned the travis scott thing i think that was that was a really great that's probably the most successful example of the metaverse working in terms of numbers mm. of attendees um and we, we've been you know, we've been in quite close conversations with Epic about how we can kind of push push the envelope forward. And there's definitely a will there. And, and in fact, what I understand is that Unreal Engine is is a really great tool to do that. And Unreal Engine could turn Fortnite into photorealistic um, renders at the moment. Well, the, there's, the, there's the capabilities a, there, but um, I think we're just yeah. a little bit early. You know, I think I think this is there's, this a, is there's a perfect example of Unreal Unreal Engine on the Xbox, where around last Christmas they brought out a Matrix playable level right and the graphics like the game is so real right but they didn't release it because the movie bombed right but that's the best example i've seen of real life gameplay that mimics real life Mm. right so um but i think it goes down to we'll say for example the the problem is we say for example elon musk and twitter and everybody come back to the office that's the smartest play he can make because it's natural attrition so people will just go, well, I'm not going back. I quit, right? Mm. So there's 50%. He's cut a percentage of that 50% out of people who just naturally quit. Right? And we already know they're scrambling and going back to people that they made redundant, asking them to come back because they made a mistake, right? Um, but we've moved into, we're in this world now where people are distributed, remote. Companies are learning, right? 
that it is cheaper to either hire developers from a company like Try that the, the developers are distributed or hire people in different locations and let them work remote, right? The tools are there. Um, you can't really give an excuse now that, oh, well, I've heard of somebody based in London or Dublin. The other thing is that a lot of these roles and a lot of these people that were hired were hired during the pandemic when everybody thought we're all of a sudden we're rushing to this brand new Web3 digital world, right? Soon as we say the pandemic ended, right, or has slowed, right, people wanted to meet each other again, right? Now, they didn't want to be sat in an office five days a week, but they wanted some human integration. And like nobody has virtual drinks anymore. Nobody has virtual quizzes over Zoom, right? So that's all gone. So that's just natural attrition. There were people that realistically a blip shouldn't have been hired, right? And the market is just correcting itself, many of them. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think in regards to obviously your experience and, you, and your your knowledge of the NFT metaverse and, and Web3 space, obviously, I would class myself, classify myself as a digital artist and I've sold NFTs that mm-hmm. I created and, and would create a lot of digital content and digital artwork. And, and like you went from, I used to draw everything on pencil and paper paper and paint and then went to a Wacom and I do everything on a tablet mm. right so um but do you how, how do you feel what do you think will be the next big company or what kind of company do you think will come out of that metaverse space so who do you, who do you obviously you have Facebook and meta yeah I I don't think they're going to they're obviously trying to control it and run it but I don't think they're going to be the most successful company to come out. No. I think it will be the most successful industry in it. Well, I think there's there's uh, there's two big factors going on with that stuff. One is the emergence of Web3 principles where stuff is, uh, you know, we, we're, we're talking about distributed companies, but, you know, entire industries are becoming distributed now. And particularly if you look at what's happening in the music industry, it's perfectly viable for somebody on their mobile phone to be generating music and operating a career and distributing it and earning from it without ever leaving their mobile phone and without ever engaging with any kind of centralized platform. Um, so things, you know, the you know, combination of something like, you know, band lab software with TikTok distribution, it's like, you know, where is the value out of a record label now? So so I think those things are turning up in much more distributed ways uh, than they ever did previously. AI, as I mentioned, is the next big disruptor because that's going to put creation in the hands of absolutely everybody, you know, so the will to create will be the thing that that defines whether you do or not not talent because people will be able to collaborate with um you know algorithmic uh collaborators to produce stuff and even now i mean i you know when i put ideas decks together if i can't rapidly find the image that i want on the internet I'll go to one of these text to image generation services and I'll just tell it the image that I want. You know, I I need a bunch of people sat on a mountainside looking at a TV set. It's like, bing, you know, I have that in 30 seconds and I've got, you know, within two minutes, I've got four of them and I choose one of them and that goes in the deck. And that saved me half an hour of buggering about online, trying to find the perfect picture or getting some elements and cutting them together and putting them in Photoshop, whatever, right? So these the you know that that creativity is just there for everybody now 
And so those in those industries are almost not being centralized, they're being distributed. Web3 principles also <clears throat> suggest that you know the the ownership and management of these systems can operate in a distributed way so that there isn't a centralized authority that is signing stuff off. So all of that stuff is happening in a distributed way on one side. On the other side, I think you know there is room for a uh, a meta or a, a kind of an alphabet type function that owns the distribution of smart AI. So AI that where they've got super clever centralized systems and you can buy into their AI services and you can start to develop bespoke AIs that you're feeding almost like a little, do you remember Tamagotchis? It's like, so you just feed this AI with stuff and you make it smarter in the way that you want it to be smarter. So if you want this AI thing um, to be able to work with you to design new sneakers, you feed in every kind of sneaker that has ever existed. You feed in the trends that are happening live from social media into this thing and you train it up and then you collaborate with it and you start asking it questions and making suggestions and, you know, looping stuff around. And that's how you are going to end up producing, you know, the amazing designs that you produce. But somebody's got to give you that AI platform and somebody will, as a centralized service, own that. And that's going to be really dangerous because they basically they're going to own half yeah. the brains on the planet because half of them will be meat brains and the other half are going to be digital brains. But somebody's going to own half the digital brains. And I think we need to think about that and how it works. But I'd but those you know, the, the new space is throwing up new questions. So that was really interesting. You were saying about that company that's able to scan individuals um, uh, at work and help them appear within a metaverse environment, because my brain immediately goes, who owns the scan? Mm -hmm. um, you know, is the scan owned by the company? Do I want the company only a full 3D scan of me? Or do I own that scan? Because if I own that scan, and it sits there in a kind of a blockchain, uh, um, you know, independent uh, uh, status, you know, effectively as an NFT, then I've got some kind of interoperability is what I expect between digital worlds, because that sense of me should turn up in one way at work and another way in Fortnite and another way, you know, on like a JPEG. It, well, you know, it's it, everywhere, you know, exactly. But 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 the ownership sits with me. And yeah. if work want while I'm employed, if work want to basically license the right from me to take a visual representation of me into work environments that they own, then that's totally fine. That's a standard part of my contract. It's an understood behavior. But what they don't own is the scan of me because I have to be able to own that. It's like a GDPR rule thing, right? I have to be able to own any three-dimensional scan of myself because if I don't, I cease to own myself in a digital form. Yeah, but I suppose, I suppose it's like if you move on to another company, you want to be able to bring that with you. Totally, exactly, which is why that, that gravity and that ownership has to has to sit with me otherwise i've spent years investing in this digital persona that as soon as i get fired by elon musk doesn't exist anymore yeah i suppose like if we move well. on yeah. what about people copying you know what's to say that someone's not gonna be able to clone yeah. that scan and turn up as you i mean i'm not but but guys guys are we not 
do we not accept that everything we do online, we've given up our entire rights to anyway? But you know, no, but I mean, that's that. We are the product, you know. That's exactly. That's, but that, that's the point of NFTs and blockchain technology, yeah. isn't it? It's like there will be only one definitive one that I have signed off on, and I own it, and it is understood to be immutable and unchangeable. And that's yeah. the promise of that technology. Is you know, you can make copies of something, but you know they're understood to be copies. They are not the real thing. And systems that then draw on that smart contract to be able to realize those things, you know, it, it allows that digital scarcity. And I still believe there is so much, you know, we're working out how to use that technology and it will change things. It's just a mess at the moment. Yeah. I suppose mo mo moving on in regards to the question uh, that, that I mentioned to you earlier in our earlier call, so in regards to yourself, what band or musician has inspired your career? Obviously, with your background in NME and Mix Mag and stuff, which artist or artists or song has inspired you? Um, I think Radiohead are the band that have stayed with me most constantly and the one that I go back to just because the 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 intelligence and the depth and the complexity of what they do and the variety of mood states and you know that's wonderful but I think um Suede and you know that best new band in Britain cover that the Melody Maker did and then going to see them on that first UK tour when I was in Manchester at the university it was supposed to be in a tiny it had been booked for a tiny little venue called the hop and grape bar it was about 250 people and they ended up playing the academy on that tour which is over a thousand and the excitement of that i was just like i needed to be part of that in one way shape or form am i allowed to yeah. name drop to say that my first band beware the green monkey which is what got me into all the things that i'm doing now in other words failing in that band was what generated everything that i'm, I'm doing now suede supported us at camden, camden underworld in about ni 1990 um and we played it and it flooded some something went wrong in one of the dressing rooms and we ended up in the same dressing room together with with suede was was justine frishman in the band at the yeah time? she was at yeah. the time yeah and and i remember that i remember thinking suede what where did the hell do you get a name like that from i mean in a band called beware the green monkey i was yeah, questioning yeah. where where a name like suede came from i just found it quite amusing in those days to uh yeah but that's my little my little suede story there connor great story because i suppose like a local band from where i'm from fontaine's dc obviously enemy yeah. the best band in the world he was in one of the guys was in the pub with us last week or the week before last and um, but again it's like i think those kind of stories like bands how they inspire you and and Bands like them, let's say, came from a small town and they're, they're being on Jimmy Kimmel, they're on TV. Yeah. It's the same as, I think that, that's what inspires your career. But so is the, the final point, if you had a campfire story, right? What would be the, the one story that you would, you would either tell to uh, your 20 year old self or advice you might give to somebody who wants to get into, into the industry, whether it's in, publishing or digital publishing or marketing or digital or or meta or web3 what what's your last piece of advice you'd give to somebody to get to where they want to be in their career and how well, do they get there d this is a kind of you know it's, it's a very general story because we don't know what the future looks like so you know you have to focus on core principles but i was working on an internet magazine hilariously paper thing talking about the digital space um at dennis publishing i was news editor on a magazine called escape and 
Um, I got a um, a press release across my desk uh, talking about the launch of Enemy.com um, as a website, which was a big deal. That's you press release the launch of websites. And I got um, just, it was a standard mail out and um, there was an invite to the launch party at uh, an internet cafe on golden square in london because it was one of the few places you could get internet and um and i thought to myself you know because i loved music and i had nothing you know i wasn't connected in the music scene at all and i thought well look if if i don't go i can guarantee nothing will happen if i do go you never know something might come of it and you know, I went down there with a friend of mine, and um, after a while, I spotted a guy called Steve Sutherland, who was editor at the time. I recognised him from the paper, and so I had a couple more becks for Dutch Courage, and then just went up and started talking to him. And I think he was interested because I was the only kind of technology person who really wanted to speak to him. Everyone else was music people, and he was a little bit bored of that. But he was very excited by this website he'd been working on. And, um, you know, we we kind of had a good chat. And then I went to see Pulp in Finsbury Park a few months later. And I spotted Steve again, um, you know, just outside the entrance to the VIP, VIP area. And so I kind of bounded over and I just kind of said hello. And, you know, within uh, a couple of weeks, uh, he'd invited me to do two weeks on the news desk at NME. But for me, it all went back to that press release that came across the desk. And, you know, it is that that very simple thing of you make your own luck, you create your own opportunities. The thing that enabled me to go on that amazing journey that I went on to end up being editor was I'd made the effort to begin with. I'd seeded those opportunities. I'd taken them when they were available and I differentiated myself by just caring and that for me is 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 the advice to give to people it's like you know you you will you know the value and the opportunity that you get will be defined by the effort that you put into stuff brilliant thanks for that connor and um, so i suppose we've come to the end of the cast now i'd like to thank you for your time it's been very interesting thank you obviously speak for longer um, and i hope to sometime bring you back on to the cast further down the line and um, but everybody thanks for your time stay distributed and we'll talk to you soon 